This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries. Unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability, criminal prosecution, and the wrath of the tall man. <laughs> Boy! Thanks for checking out 90 for Chill, the podcast. And this is where I like to give my context warnings and trigger warnings. And with this episode discussing the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension, I can't say that uh, me and the poetic critic get too uh, volatile with anything. Hopefully, this will be a nice little flashback to 1984. And if anything, I regret not picking on Jeff Goldblum even more. Little hands, it is time to rock and roll. Bring the noise. And welcome to 90 for Chill, the podcast. This is your host, Cat Bus Russ, is what all my fellow podcasters know me by. If you want to follow what I'm watching, you can do that on Letterboxd. The username is CM Darth. And if you need your house to play the entire podcast, you can ask your Amazon Echo or Google Nest device to play podcast by Russ Stevens. And that should fill the rooms with my dulcet tones. So, I've gotten all the titles out of the way, I suppose. So, let's get on to the show. This week, I've invited back the Poetic Critic, a.k.a. my big sister, a.k.a. Jurassic Jeff Jezebel, to discuss Buckaroo Banzai. I'm sorry, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension with such actors, of course, Peter Weller, Jeff Goldblum, John Lithgow, I mean, it's quite the ensemble cats, which is why I'm going to throw in a review for the 2012 Selma Blair-led feature, Columbus Circle. I mean, that's got a hell of a cast. I don't think I even mentioned them all in that review. I mean, but I digress. Uh, Love for Bull Bridges, let's just put it that way. So, otherwise, it's a quiet week. I'm not going to complain too much, I suppose. If anything, you know, excitement with our um, trivia team victory on Thursday at Poor Bros. And, you know, Hive seems to be interesting and fun. Not Hive, I'm sorry. Is it Hive? I don't know. I digress. Dating apps. What can I say? So, with that said, though, next week we're going to have a previous guest on the show. And the language will probably get pretty harsh during that. So, just a heads up. And if you want to be a more polite, <laughs> worded guest, feel free to drop an email to russthebus07 at gmail.com. That's R-U-S-S-T-H-E-B-U-S-07 at gmail.com. Offer me a movie, a director, an actor, a theme. Just try to so- focus on sub-100-minute movies, and I think we'll have a slice of fried gold. Actually, you can offer me any movie. I will make it work. Just uh, bear with my creativity, I suppose. So, I don't really have too much left to say in the track of music's about to end so let's get on to the show thanks for coming to 90 for chill the podcast now available on video cassette he's a rocker doctor don't talk about that you never know what it might be attached to inventor philosopher no matter where you go there you are the only hero, Buckaroo, 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 curse are you bonsai, who can save us all. Evil, you're from the eighth dimension, Let him. Launch thermal pod. Buckaroo Bonsai, 
is pure nutty fun. Fucker, you forgot your thruster. What are you all on for what? The cult sci-fi classic. Run, run! In a dimension all its own. Real life Martians landing in New Jersey. We will fire a portable beam weapon. Vaporize the whole damn planet? If we blow this today, get him up. There ain't no tomorrow. Left, I said left. This is left. I mean, my left. All left, go your right. Popular little president's calling about is everything okay with the alien space club and planet 10, or should we just go ahead and destroy Russia? Tell him yes on one and no on two. The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai. Which was yes, destroy Russia or uh, number two? That's just weird now thinking about Oklahoma being boomer sooner. Boomer Siri has said we are recording, and this is 90 for Chill, the podcast. And once again, the brightest or the, yeah, I guess you'd say the brightest mind in Central Illinois cinema is back with us, the poetic critic. And, but on this podcast, we probably know her best as Jurassic Jeff Jezebel. And we are addressing another gold bloom, gold mine with uh, The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension from 1984. So, as I say, uh, this movie's runtime officially, I think, is 142. But, you know, four minutes of it's the credit, and these guys basically doing a curtain call. Right. So, you know, I don't know. Was that a little too goofy for you? No, I like the uh, curtain call. Okay, I mean, like I was watching it a little more carefully, and it's like, no, 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 Clancy Brown died. <laughs> uh, it's like the director doesn't really, like, these guys know they're doing a movie strictly for nerds. Which I think is a fair statement. Which explains the lack of box office or sequels. Well... As I was saying before we started the recording, there's some pretty complicated reasons why we didn't get more Buckaroo Bonsai material than we might have otherwise. Well, yeah, as I uh, started the Blu-ray up there running my peripheral, it showed the MGM Lion. This is a Shout Factory Steelbook release um, for myself. Um, And uh, you brought up that it was originally distributed by 20th Century Fox Making Jeff Goldblum a Disney prince? I don't know. <laughs> okay. So, obviously, you know, this is a movie that uh, it, it's kind of weird because you'd say, like, oh, why we don't have more Buckaroo Bonsai material? It's like, you know, we kind of need it. Some would say you kind of need the Buffaroo, Buckaroo Bonsai material to begin with. This is a movie that really just throws you into an established universe. Well, the way you explain it to people now is, and I've heard it described this way elsewhere, there's at least one good video essay on the subject, is that what if you were watching Avengers Endgame, but you never saw any of the other Marvel movies? Yeah, that's a simple way of describing it. But, I mean, an easy way to describe it. But as I say, it's like, you're jumping into something you're seeing on Showtime's HBO on cable back in the day. Like you're expecting to know the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. So. uh, It is that you've been dropped in the middle of what's 
supposed to be a much longer ongoing narrative. Oh, well, I mean, there's plenty of hints with the comic books (laughs) images being. The screenwriter's novelization goes even further with this. Ah. Yes. uh, Drew McWayne talked about it when they were talking about the movie on 80s all over, but the, the novelization has extensive footnotes referring to the other novels in the series the idea being that this is that the starting point was a series of novels okay pulp fiction vein oh like the executioner doc savage the man of bronze okay so like i guess again bringing a marvel parallel so deadpool before deadpool yeah pretty much because deadpool was 91 and such so well a little later than that when they really got they figured out how to make deadpool work as a character right as the uh, anti-hero opposed to just uh, another mutant yeah Hmm. but uh no there's uh buckaroo bonsai does have the unique conceit that it just throws you into the the good stuff you might say Mm. i mean one of biggest problems that the comic book movie industrial complex has seen is that almost everybody starts with the origin story movie and after a while that gets boring oh well and no there's plenty of uh examples of like uh beloved movies without the origin story say uh punisher war zone it has a lot of supporters and don't know any of them myself well, oh, how did this get made? We're big supporters of it. I'm going to talk about a movie that doesn't really do the origin story. I was thinking more like Batman 89. Well, <laughs> you say, say, but, say that, but every time there's a new Batman, with the exception of Clooney, they kind of, uh, in case you missed it. <laughs> yes, that's become a running gag that every iteration of Batman's going to have to depict the backstory at some point. I haven't seen Batman, uh, the Batman, so. Right. Well, that, that I think that is an exception. Okay. Yeah. That they just start that, about, I think, about two years into Batman's career. Mm. The Lego Batman movie just briefly acknowledges that Batman doesn't have parents. Right. And, but actually depicting it has become a huge running gag in this with people is that they can't just mention what the backstory is they have to show it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yep so so uh do we know how buckaroo's uh parents passed that he's the son once that i think appears on your dvd Ah. and if you watched as an extended cut with jamie lee curtis as the mom whoa that brings this up okay well yeah so that's um i mean it it, so uh, as i as i was talking to uh my uh friend of the show tim bates at work hey just rewatch that and he's like yeah that is something um basically he was very much on the it's got gold bloom so it's definitely good so i showed my uh boyfriend david last halloween we were watching movies together one day and he he had been interested in this one after he'd seen the in search of tomorrow documentary about 80s sci-fi because he'd never heard yeah. of it. 
fill that. Once he saw it, though, he was totally on board for it. He said he was going to have to watch it again, but he got on board on it from the start. Well, I mean, the 80s were a weird time for cinema, at least in the Stevens household, because mom was big on this one. Yes, mom loved this one. Yeah, which, I mean, yeah, she'll she'll watch MCU movies, but, you know, there's the... I mean, aside from looking for... Like her big thing is looking for older actors she likes and whatever yeah. they're doing now, right? So I mean I can't really say that much with this. I mean this is still pre the John Lithgow. Yeah, a lot of these actors were careers were just taking off at the time this movie was released. A lot of them were coming up from character roles or like Christopher Lloyd. They were really coming more out of TV than movies. Oh, Christopher Lloyd is priceless in this one. I think this is the. If it wasn't for uh, John Booty, Big John, Big Booty. Yeah. uh, I'm sorry, Big Booty. Yeah, I don't know where uh, where you'd get a lot of the villain roles. Well, I guess he did. He just caught. Was this after uh, Star Trek Three? Was released the month before this film, or like. So I'm just saying that's when he's gotten into the uh, real villainous stuff. Well, I remember in the but talking about coming out of TV, I remember there's a gag in the mad parody of Star Trek three when after they establish the uh, Klingons as plot, uh, the villain sits next and says, okay, take five. And the giant off-duty sign lights up on the Klingon ship. <laughs> right. Uh <laughs> In a previous life, he used to work as a cabbie in New York City. <laughs> so, all right, it's got to get my shot of Malort in. Okay. I don't know what other podcast is promoting that stuff, but I mean, I could at least use. I mean, it, it was it was a big joke at the uh, what do you know trivia, um, which is Chicago based. Uh, tournament of champions like you had the malort cohorts and such so I remember that. and of course i started drinking this stuff when i was wrestling in berwin mm-hmm. sorry i figured i could get to spend ghoulie out of you there <laughs> well, i don't know if your target audience knows much from stuff like spangoolies so. yeah so yeah well i mean I don't really know what the target audience is, honestly, when all the promotion is usually wrestling related. Like, hey, remember me getting shoved into a women's bathroom in Berwyn by Austin Aries? I'm doing stuff still. So, um, so I mean, let's so the movie basically starts with uh, Peter Weller as the. Buckaroo Banzai, neuroscientist, neuro, neurosurgeon, and uh, just a guy trying to be the best that he can be, uh, leading his uh, band, the Hong Kong Cavaliers. Cavaliers, yep. And, uh, you know, pretty cool guy looking to recruit anybody into it, which is kind of ridiculous when you see the lineup they have to begin with. I mean, never mind, he can play the horn and guitar, so. And piano. And, uh, you know, his next big attempt was to follow the 
works of his mentor, that would be Professor Hikeda, and who was uh, partnered with Dr. Ah, I think I can sum this up a little more. Okay. As the movie begins, Buckaroo Bonsai is working on a jet car project involving an oscillation overthruster. Which looks a lot like the uh, thrust capacitor in some images. Yeah, I don't know if that was intentional or not on the part of Robert Zemeckis and company. But, which was a project that his mentor had been working on back in the 1930s with one Dr. Emilio Lazardo. Mm-hmm. That the that jet car attempt, well, it, it didn't go so well. Yeah, you kind of need jets to begin with. <laughs> That's true. But it it left Lizardo seemingly insane, although it's actually because he's his body is now playing the host to one the leader of a group of banished aliens from planet ten. The red as, lectoid, yeah. correct? Yeah, red electroids who were banished many years ago to Earth, and in fact, their arrival is what the War of the Worlds broadcast of 1938 was actually trying to warn people about before the aliens erased Orson Welles's memory. Which is essentially the first time Jeff Goldblum ever did the um coincidence catch a cold. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, that's oh. one of his first big exposition dumps in a movie. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Buckaroo Bonsai successfully manages to not only break the sound barrier, but briefly travel into the eighth dimension where the other red electroids are as yet imprisoned, most of them anyway. Mm-hmm. When Emilio Zardo, and who is been institutionalized in an asylum and a very low rent one at that yes finds out about it he starts making plans not only to escape but to convene with the other red the other red electroids to gain control of the overthrusters so they can free their the captives from the other dimension and return to their home world and i only brought up the color of the red electroids because they are the people there are two different species of electroids. The others are black electroids who are quite aware of what's going on down on Earth and eventually task Buckaroo and his colleagues to either stop the red electroids from escaping. And if they don't, they will have to, the red, the black electroids will instigate World War III by causing a nuclear by triggering a nuclear exchange between the U.S. and the USSR. So and they only have about 24 hours to figure this how how they can stop them. And I only bring up the colors again because I didn't really catch on to the race concerns until my most recent rewatch. Yes. All the, um, so... Uh, yeah, red, that, electro- the- <laughs> red electroids and black electroids can assume human, what appears to be human form to human eyes. Otherwise, there is what they're what my my boyfriend called discount Klingons, basically. 
Right, but I'm, what I'm just saying is like our I'm black electrodes. Okay, black electrodes appear to us as basically black Jamaican people. Red electrodes appear as white redheads. Basically, oh, I did not catch on to the ginger bit. All right. Well, no, they're all pretty much redheads, yep. aren't they? <laughs> well, they're definitely soulless. <laughs> so. All right, so, yeah. So, of course, in the meantime, you know, Buckaroo's got his own uh, tour tour dates to hit with the Cavaliers, and he comes across a uh, Penny. Penny who... Pretty, who appears to be um, the spinning image of his late wife. Yes, Peggy. Yeah. So, yeah, so definitely several volumes, so... As I say, you you have to accept that you're just getting the good stuff. Mm-hmm. Which uh which is definitely um yeah, so I can see why people are people who aren't really familiar with uh comic books and novels or at that time, I mean even watching, you know, serials on TV would kind of feel a little off like um you know, what the what have they been dropped into? So, and this is a movie though that I think is ve- still very eighties in a sense. No, it's a completely eighties version of pulp aesthetic. This okay. is you now just a few years into M- MTV. There's a definite new wave riff in the the Buckaroo and his band's aesthetic. Yes. Well, uh, the backing band that appears in the club scene is actually Billy Vera and the Beaters. Oh, all right. The actual, which was a group at the time that had a few hits, like uh, I Can Take Care of Myself and songs like that. Mm-hmm. No, there. it's definitely being more, not trying to be a completely ground up piece of world building the way a lot of the sci-fi films of this period were trying to be after star wars okay yeah i could definitely see that um with so i mean that kind of preaches this is a better version of the ice pirates right another another movie that came out that same summer oh 1984 was a really big push for sci-fi movies i mean most people think of 82 as right the e- et the et the thing uh blade runner 80s but 1984 is almost as thick on the ground the main difference is by that point they were getting more willing to be comp- more comedic takes on these ideas well right i mean and when you say this is summer stuff it's it's basically saying and this got eaten up by ghostbusters yeah, and Gremlins also mm. came out at the time. Which, again, still kind of fits that aesthetic, in a sense. Yeah. Right, so I'm trying to th- remember where in New Jersey they're playing. Oh, I think maybe Brunswick, or I, or that's where, New Brunswick is where uh, Jeff Goldblum's uh, New Jersey is from. Yeah. Which, uh, I don't know. Too much too many or too few scenes of him with the chaps. 
No, I absolutely don't know where they got the idea that that character would have the cowboy motif. <laughs> that winds up being one of the funniest things in the movie. Yes. I mean, and, uh, you know, other members of the, I mean, Clancy Brown is Rawhide. Right. Uh, Lewis Smith is Perfect Tommy, which yeah. um, which is fun, especially the scene where they're getting uh, Penny out of prison right. after after out of jail after her confused suicide attempt slash assassination attempt <laughs> uh ellen barkin is the um, actress who plays uh pretty so if you if you need something better than uh mad dog time <laughs> uh with ellen uh, barkin and jeff goldblum this would be the pick <laughs> um but- mm. But I mean, I just like the bit. Why? Why? Why is it my drat? Why do I? Why does she need my jacket? Because you're perfect. You got a point there. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting looking at '80s aesthetics. You get the films that were trying to do the world building from the ground up. Then you get the ones that were clearly set in this world, like right. Spielberg was and his uh, ilk were very good at this. Mm-hmm. And then you have the ones that are, aren't are doing ground-up world-building, but clearly aren't quite this, quite the world we know. And I think that's where he'd put something like this. Okay. Everything feels a little off. Oh, yeah. No, it's a little, a little too much fun or a little too much, little too knowledgeable of what we're actually dealing with, especially in the Reagan times. Yeah, that's one way of putting it, where these kind of things clearly happen in this world as a matter of course, rather than mm-hmm. being well, well, you know, we talk about the red luck toys, but there's a lot of Italians as uh, red luck toys. Uh, Vincent Sch- Schiavelli, Dan Hedaya, as uh, John O'Connor and uh, John Gomez. Right. Um, you know, the seconds to lord john warfin if mm. you get where we're going with with the names right the the running gag with the lect another running gag with both species of electroid is that all their earth aliases are john and some kind of a last name mm-hmm. and if they're women well mm-hmm. if, you, if you pay attention they they get, eventually get to ones like john smallberries all berries yes John, many Johns. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm talking about 80s Mm sci-fi and how how it evolves over the course of the decade. Uh, 84 could be the year where we saw the most comedic variations on concepts. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you get to 85, that's the year when you start seeing the obvious Spielberg influence kick in. Yes. Getting movies like Cocoon and Young Sherlock Holmes. Well, and that was a uh, Spielberg produced, correct? Yeah, the more Spielberg produced. So there, it was obvious they were going to be going after that instead. Back to the Future also qualifies. Yes, uh, the number uh, one uh, Spielberg yeah. produced movie. Oh. oh, sorry. That was Green Draft's choice. Yeah, and I mean, got, it finally got drafted. Yes, that was a big deal, and a lot of heat on Ryan Marker. Yeah, 
Uh, for those who did not follow the Screen Drafts podcast, uh, yes. Future was a movie eligible for many pre- to be drafted in many previous topics. Including time travel time- and July 4th. <laughs> yeah, July 4th releases, but only recently was it finally on drafted into one of the lists so yes it, it it gets crazy with the disaster girls uh podcast dedicated to um disaster movies and yeah. their influence on the top 10 is darn near scary so <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know? yeah so but um uh, 1985 you see the obvious spielberg influence everywhere whether he has a hand in the production or not and that's Would also you... your joe dante's explorers Mm-hmm. which uh, he did very well in the producer's draft, produced by draft as well. Uh, and I was actually thinking, hey, do you got any uh, Spielbergian vibes on the Santa Claus movie? Uh, Santa Claus, the movie? Hmm. N- no. Uh, okay. I would, no, Santa Claus, the movie is uh, really a different kind of filmmaking altogether. It does. You do, It does kind of have that feel of the Euro producer trend oh, of okay. the '80s. Uh, for those who are not familiar with the 1985 Santa Claus the movie, this was from the producers of the Christopher Reeve Superman films, among mm. a few other productions. But that's what they would be best known for. To, I think, your listening audience, mm. and as a kind of a Euro mega production, more like. Kind of like, uh, well, what Dino De Laurentiis was doing with stuff like Borden. It was their attempt to do a major spectacle based around the Santa Claus legend. Well, it's a it's a fun John Lithgow performance. Let's. (laughs) Yeah, but there's not really a Spielberg influence on that. Well, and I bring that up going to you, when you also think of. Roland Emmerich and what he was doing around that time. Uh, yeah, this more, more. Yeah, that's a very different kettle of fish. No, stinky uh, sardines there. <laughs> but uh, Santa Claus, Santa Claus the movie uh, doesn't have a Spielberg influence, although it isn't that far. And I'm sure I'm going to offend some fans by saying it. But it's a pretty clear precursor to what happened with Hook. <laughs> oh, don't worry about that. Uh, not a lot of love for Hook, honestly, when we look at it uh, with um, clear eyes. Uh, I mean, it was just a bunch of millennial kids liking Rufio. Yes, there is a very strong millennial fan base for this movie, and you don't necessarily want to offend that crowd. <laughs> oh, bollocks to them, all right? Like... Not everything Robin Williams did was gold. So just because Mrs. Doubtfire was fun, which you probably didn't get in 1993. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, people were just looking for the genie to do goofy stuff again. My opinion. So um, that was fun. Something fun they were talking about um, with another draft i don't want to draft pick i didn't want to uh spoil it too much but uh you know uh a lot of people don't know a lot of kids did not know bob hopkins was english uh not not until we saw the making of material though 
Yes. <laughs> like, oh, that guy's that Shmi is just doing a great accent. <laughs> Kids see Brazil. <laughs> so. So. I mean, I don't know. It's really. I guess I guess I'd say is this a movie a little too predictable that uh I again being basically the continuation of a series uh that Buckaroo wasn't really going to be in any harm in this feature. Uh yeah, it is that kind of a story I suppose. I mean, it's the story where you know the good guys are going to win going in. Well, yeah, that's true. No, it's not a movie that's about emotional stakes or torque in any way. Right. And I guess with that said, is that something that um I'm you know, a lot of people I mean, I guess modern audiences definitely seem to uh, just have a vibe that they need those stakes. I'm not quite sure where you're going at. In the well, name Every move, every comic book movie or franchise related picture practically guarantees that no character will be dead for long if they die at all. It's hard to see what emotional stakes those have. Well, I'm just saying, but um, look, if we didn't kill Quicksilver in the second Avengers movie, then, um, you know, nobody would be prepared for, uh, you know, the Black Widow or you know Gamora in the sequels I guess well there's actually a word for that kind of thing in the world of comic books for something like Quicksilver is called C-list fodder well there's nobody is going to care about anyway they can just toss to the wolves as needed yeah it's true so you're saying rawhide was just C-list fodder oh no I'm not <laughs> saying I'm He's not cool and stuff. So I'm at the press conference at my peripheral. Characters who have to be thrown to the wolves in the end to suggest that there is a danger the characters are facing. Mm. It's like in the James Bond movies where usually the first gal he hooks up with ends up dead. Yeah, no. Screw the the herpes he's spreading. (laughs) You just don't want to be the first one in the movie. Uh, so uh, so we're at the press conference in my peripheral and you get that vibe uh, that kind of just pops up out of there about uh, Penny just knowing everything that's going on right there's there's an explanation for this in the novelization but I don't want to go into spoilers okay yeah no, I appreciate that an explanation for this mm. So, but, um, you know, this is basically, again, like I was, uh, as I was discussing with Tim at work, um, there's a lot of, uh, like everybody had to be all in on pretty much like, you know, no, everything established to make this movie work. Yeah. So, um. I mean, of course, you got. I mean, I guess that's the 
that's a benefit of having such uh you know great character actors in this movie uh, tom baker uh the most famous of the classical doctor who's uh, put it that one of the most important things if not the most important thing that you had to have as an actor to, to be to be the doctor was that you could just rattle off techno babble and exposition at a moment's notice and make it sound convincing even if it didn't actually make any logical sense if you looked at it okay so this movie uh, basically requires a whole cast of actors who can do this right yeah i mean i mean you look at it from a i mean just from the lead standpoint uh peter weller i don't think he's ever really worked as a um, leading man in a traditional sense. I mean, his uh, probably his most famous role is actually is the original RoboCop. Yeah, three years three years later, right? Well, he didn't have, never really had a lot of traditional leading roles. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, although he could, I mean, he was able to carry, carry movies as needed and. Genre films like uh, Leviathan and they think <laughs> Oh yeah, so we're still trying to. I'm still trying to get uh, Andrew TD um, on board. He really wants to talk about Tombstone, which yeah. obviously doesn't qualify. But right, John Casamatos is. I'm sorry, George P. Casamatos is kind of like the ultimate uh, pushover director. Um, oh, what you're saying? Well, I mean. You know, Cobra, you know, he pretty much was just complaining about uh, Stallone. The reason why we're behind schedule is you're just taking so much time to screw around with your what, your girlfriend. And pretty much everybody uh, claims that uh, Ken, uh, Kurt Russell, I would have loved to see a Ken Russell Western, but <laughs> Kurt Russell directed Tombstone. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, but Leviathan, for what it is, I I have not seen the, uh, I have not seen the Abyss, and I have not seen Deep Star Six. But, I mean, if you want, um, if you're a fan of Chud, (laughs) um, you definitely get, uh, you definitely get your fill with um, Leviathan. You got your Ernie Hudson, your Daniel Stern, and. uh, like whenever you put uh, Meg Foster in some kind of mysterious role, you're usually got gold. So it's a good, good way to kill ninety minutes. And I think it was the pick they gave on the um, screen drafts aquatic horror draft from the '89 movies. Yeah, it would have been. The mm. thing about to go off on a tangent, the thing about uh, the '89 underwater movie boom was everyone assumed the abyss was going to be a horror film initially oh okay that just be yeah um they talked about this on screen drafts not screen drafts but one of the 80s all over bonus episodes Mm. there's the assumption going in that given what james cameron had done before with the the terminator and especially aliens aliens, yeah to do an underwater movie was going to be an underwater horror movie so a lot of the abyss mockbusters that were thrown into production went with that assumption that he was just going to do aliens underwater. Mm. When 
that wasn't what the abyss is at all. It's a very different kind of story. But they couldn't have known that at the time. Right. Well, I mean, that's just the entire fun of the mockbusters, especially in the 80s before Made for Video was a legitimate platform. Yeah, Made for Video was starting to take off in the 80s, but it was only the disreputable horror stuff or some kind of stuff for kids. Yes. There's a, probably a podcast episode to be talked about that kind of thing. Yeah, something to consider. But I mean, for the most part, though, it was all about rentals in the 80s. Yeah, it was mostly a rental market back then. Right. So, I mean, with streaming now, I mean, it's about, you know, about that time. But I would say by the uh, mid-90s until streaming, uh, Mockbusters is a, you know, all about selling you stuff. Because, you know, like Abraham Lincoln's Zombie Hunter. (laughs) Mm. Um, But it's all about beating to the punch. Hey, which brings us to probably our everybody's most un- favorite, uh, dare I say, Mockbuster Studio in a sense, as in um, Canon. Canon, I'm not, not sure you would say was a Mockbuster Studio per se. Well, think about missing an action. And that's true. Yeah. Something that would qualify. Right. But- Producers, the way the exploitation market always works is that you are trying to grab onto trends as soon as you can. Right. I mean, you had two break-in movies in one year. Right. I think the difference between between uh, something like Canon and the Asylum was that the Asylum wouldn't. The Asylum does try to trick the gullible. Canon was more was. nakedly imitating stuff but they weren't trying to pretend they were something they weren't Mm, okay that that is fair despite you know they uh i think the go on and glowis would go to say cans with a movie poster (laughs) to sell yeah they they sell things on the posters and stuff and then then write the the script afterwards uh, right back in the days of uh, Roger Corman at American International Pictures when he was getting his grounding in the industry, it was not uncommon for to come up with the po- the title in a poster first and then you make the movie. Well, and... That standard, so that was standard issue B pictures back in the 50s. Well, okay, I can see that. I'm just more accustomed, I guess, to the uh, full moon features and... Um... Stuart Gordon experiences like the entire thing about Castle Freak was just a image on the wall and like so what is that it's a castle and there's a freak <laughs> so I mean I guess that with that that thought this movie is a Jeffrey Combs away from perfection but I'm granted he didn't do reanimator till a year after this yeah so, but talking about producers and stuff, okay. The story, I'm just going to go by memory here. Okay, okay cool. But the producer of Buckaroo Bonsai, of Sherwood Productions, the mm. production that we see before the film proper, uh, David Bagelman, um, he produced a a few movies, but he pretty much clamped down on the rights to all of them pretty tightly. Yeah, which was involved mm. 
shady business dealings that and this ended up tying up the buckaroo bonsai rights for many many years it took i mean i don't think they did the first dvd release of this movie until 2004 because they had to sort the rights issues uh, at least and, they got it for the 20th yeah but that was also what tied up any plans to do to do the sequel that they had had, had loose idea for in mind. So I do see or, at the end of the or, movie you get the yeah, yeah the promise of Buck Rubansa against the World Crime League, and the movie hadn't done that well in theaters, but everybody was enthusiastic enough about it that they would have done a sequel if asked. Mm, yeah. And, or a television series, which was being floated around in, for a time around the late 90s. But eventually everybody aged out of it. All right. No, I mean, if you're going to come back to it now, it's definitely in that uh, legacy sequel era where I think you have that guy who played uh, Snake Eyes as who would be the next Buckaroo Banzai just because eh, we don't really want to mess around with the fact that Peter Weller is definitely not half Japanese. Right. That's, that's another sign. This was an eighties movie that yes. cast, cast a Caucasian guy as a biracial character. And no well, I, I've known enough second, third generation Asians who still like to throw the uh, last name associated with them. <laughs> I was in, uh, again, I'm in the wrestling business. So it's like uh, Brett Wilson, um, good friend, great, great opponent, you know, would go by Brett Kakia, the Asian sensation. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're definitely two generations removed. So I don't, I, it's basically, I defend Cameron Crowe for um, the Emily Stone controversy for, what was that, Aloha or? Yeah, aloha. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, I mean, if you if you watch the South Park episode where Butters comes to terms with his Hawaiian roots, it 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 seems forgivable. I don't know. The key thing that kept Buckaroo Bonsai from having any kind of continuation, despite it finding a measure of cult success, had a lot to do with uh, the legal wranglings with the producer. No, and I could, yeah, no, you should never, like, just from my own personal experiences, the uh, copyright owner of Main Event of the Dead, yeah, um, come off the idea and then get your friends involved. Don't don't go straight to Congress. <laughs> now, you were talking earlier about how this was a movie for nerds, and that was another reason the film kind of struggled in 1984 is because most of the marketing for the film was directly targeted at the the sci-fi convention market and magazines like Starlog. Right. They didn't really try to sell uh, the mass movie-going audience so much. No, no, this would be, today, it would be a, a mid-sized budget Fathom Events and Let's See What Happens project. I don't know if you do something this elaborate for Fathom Events. Okay, I was being generous. Low, 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 low. So low, bro, low budget, but 
I mean, it's a solid enough script. I mean, that's the key to being a good fathom event is it's not too, it didn't cost too much to make, but it's got a special audience and let's just go for that. I I mean, that's how Kevin Smith is still making movies. For what it's worth, but yeah, back back in the eighties, there were a few movies that seemed to get most of their promotion through the uh, Starlog or Fangori circuit. And yeah, within I mean, within two years, there were Buck Rubansai fan club listings in magazines like Starlog. Because remember, the internet was not in wide use at the time, right? I like, mean, you mainly but... dealt with uh, specialty interest magazines and snail mail fan clubs back then right oh I've just gotten this scene so we've gotten to the point where uh, buckaroo has been uh electrically uh charged with the formula to see the um well he's been given the ability to see electrodes for what they actually look well like. yes but he's got to pass the formula on to dr right. Mikado oh. and you know basic and basically it's a running gag now that uh you don't necessarily want to shock his shake his hand, I should say. Right. I um, you know, constantly plays part. And Goldblum again. This is like, like I, I, you know, it's almost surprising that Goldblum got the fly because it's like, oh, we know where to plug it. Plug this guy in. I mean, it, it was almost an exposition drop in, say, Annie Hall. I mean, I, I think it speaks for the attitudes of the feature at many points. What was it? Uh, What's my motivation? No, it's I forgot my mantra. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is weird. Has Christopher Walken and Jeff Goldblum been anything else? Or have they actually shared the screen, I should say? Um, the Complete Works podcast covered several movies in which they both appeared but they never have shared time together on screen. I mean, this goes back not just to Annie Hall, but the Sentinel in 1977. They both have roles in that. Um, uh, same year as Annie Hall, but... Wait, you listened to part of the Man of the Year episode. Yes. Yeah, I didn't, but, you know... That was, still two, that was still 2006. Like, yeah. And there, they, there's, there's hope. But no, Walken and Goldblum came out of the same uh, New York base when it came when they got their acting careers underway. So they actually turned up in, uh, I think, four movies have both actors in them. The other is uh, really early 1976's Next Stop Greenwich Village. Right, I've heard of. Yeah, which also has Bill Murray in it, which is a whole different set of crossovers. Yeah, very weird, because 70... I mean, what, Murray, Murray didn't go on Saturday Night Live until the 75, 76 season, correct? No, 76, 77. Oh, okay. You see, I, I just thought he was immediately filling in for Chevy. Right. So... But, um... So... So, I mean... Now, obviously, Buckaroo Banzai in this feature is a national treasure. He's basically got his fan club supplying with helicopters to get out of situations. 
Yeah, this is this is another throwback to Pulp Fiction. Uh, characters like Doc Savage have, uh, besides the direct sidekicks, which in this movie it's the Hong Kong Cavaliers. You know, they'll have a group like the famous Spot. Um, in different fiction, they'd have a the hero has some kind of group of sidekicks. Mm. I mean, and it goes like the Fabulous Five. I want to say, mm. uh, even Sherlock Holmes. Uh, actually, Buckaroo Banzai, when you get to the Blue Blazer or Regulars, which is what you're talking about here, um, that's a uh, that's in the tradition of Sherlock Holmes's Baker Street Regulars, who were the uh, people on the street who he had contacts with. Right. When... Oh no, and it goes back to the uh, a lot of serials you would see on. Um... Mystery Science Theater 3000 in the early days, like... Um, oh, yeah, in the early days, like Commando Cody and the right. Republic serials. Mm-hmm. They tackled back then. So... But... There is something to be said. The Buckaroo Banzai and the Pulp Fiction tradition did kind of get a mini-revival in the mid-80s after Raiders the Lost Ark did its yeah. own spin on where where it's been pointed out that Raiders of the Lost Ark isn't directly in the style of 1930s serials. No, or it is not. Right. It has, some, it has a more modern, thorough pacing that didn't stop them from being kind of a boom in pulp fantasy and fiction concepts in the mid-80s to try and imitate the success Raiders had. Mm-hmm. There were actually a few movies like this, and it could be easy to confuse the titles, uh, one that came, like 1985 had Remo Williams, The Adventure. That's actually why I was pulling up Fred Ward's IMDb. Yes, uh, yes, that is a correct adaptation of a pulp line. Right. No, I used to see a bunch of the audio books at the uh, truck stop I used yeah. to work at. That's that's a direct adaptation. Mm. 1986 had more of an indie effort in this vein called Jake Speed, which is. Kind of like Buck Rubenstein's a story about a woman who uh, her sister gets kidnapped while she's traveling in France into a white slavery ring. And the woman doesn't know who to turn to for help, but it turns out that the main character from a popular series of pulp novels that her grandpa reads Mm -hmm. is actually a real person. Turns out in, in the movie's universe to be a real person who goes on globetrotting adventures with his sidekick and they make a little extra money by writing books inspired by their adventures on the side. Mm-hmm. So and they and they go on an adventure to save the sister. So this all ends with the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Well, I mean that's that's um Alan Moore. So again, <laughs> disconnect the Alan Moore from the cinema and yeah. <laughs> League of Gentle- Extraordinary Gentlemen, uh, in well, yeah. a sense. Well, yeah, in a sense, that kind of brought the pulp at kind of a deconstruction of pulp attitudes. Mm. I mean, talking about other pulp fiction that was getting adapted, uh, when Canon decided they wanted to knock off Raiders of the Lost Ark, they adapted some of the Alan Quartermain story. Right. Story. Yeah, I was familiar with that. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen those because, you know, I've seen a chunk of the Canon output. And the and the thing about the movies like Jake Speed and the Alan Quartermain movies is that they uh, 
when you talk about an 80s sensibility, the problem with a lot of the pulp adaptations was they weren't 80s enough in how they treated minority groups or other cultures. Okay, so with that said... In the uh, sensitivity, but there are some truly alarming portrayals of peoples in the uh, canon Alan Quartermain films. and it, which is because a lot of these movies were actually filmed, you know, on the continent. Right. Okay. I was about to say, well, you mean Remo Williams? It's pretty racist. And didn't that oh, guy yeah. get a supporting actor nomination for that movie, or at least a Golden Globe or something? Uh, yeah. In that movie, Joel Gray plays a Japanese guy, Korean, but <laughs> yeah, and Joel Gray, a famous Jewish stage actor, <laughs> plays a korean guy mm-hmm. and uh that's and that was one of the higher end attempts to do pulp you don't want to see some of the stuff that turned up in the canon films oh no but... no no like, yeah you either go from canon forward or you don't go back to canon <laughs> yeah <laughs> 90 for chill the podcast proudly presents to you Ali's Accessories Shop on Etsy's Trash Feature Review. So, can you tell me about the tenants that live across the hall from Ms. Lonegan? Well, I've actually never met her. Open up, please. It's NYPD. She never goes out. Ever. It's a little strange. Well, this is Columbus Circle, sir. Nothing seems strange around here. Her name is Justine Waters, known as America's little darling, sole heiress of the Waters fortune. She mysteriously disappeared 17 years ago this month. What's interesting is the girl across the hall. She doesn't have a social security number, nothing. She hasn't left her apartment in years. She looked like a victim. There's only two units on the penthouse level. If I were you, I'd make a move. What do you think? I love it. They rented the apartment. It's just that I don't want things to change. You gotta trust me, girl. They're gonna lead their lives just as Hillary led hers. Not a peep. Not going anywhere! Do you understand? for Charlie. I don't want to run from the cops. I don't make mistakes. We're one email away from a fortune. I can't go anywhere. Seven hundred and twenty million. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
since Buckaroo Banzai is pretty much an ensemble flick when you really break it down. Your Peter Wellers, your Jeff Goldblums, Ellen Barkins, Clancy Brown, John Lithgow, Christopher Lloyd, Vincent Chiavello, Dan Hedaya, etc., etc. I figure I'd better go and accompany this with Ally's Accessory Shop on Etsy's Trash Feature Review with what looks like an ensemble film from 2012, Columbus Circle, starring Selma Blair, Amy Smart, Jason Lee, Giovanni Ribisi, Bo Bridges, and Sam Levine at one point. Or Levine, I'm sorry. What have you. So, um, tagline is Fear Thy Neighbor. It's a story about Selma Blair as a shut-in in the Columbus Circle uh, neighborhood of New York City who... Oh, yeah, so... Uh, the... Neighbor across the hall just died, and she was interested in getting her apartment as well. And as it turns out, it gets rented by Jason Lee and Amy Smart. And lo and behold, they portray an abusive marriage, and it's all a scheme to get the shut-in's money. And Bo Bridges is involved with this as the caretaker to Selma Blair. Um, So, it really kind of works out for a 90 minute movie because you'd expect some cat and mouse in this um oh and i'm sorry kevin pollack uh actually wrote uh, co-wrote the screenplay with george gallo uh writer of midnight run amongst many other movies and you know it's just i can't say i say the direction is the weakest point uh maybe jason lee is an abusive husband but basically you know by the f- 50 minute mark we pretty much as have exposed the plan and it's only an 85 minute movie so it's like eh, what kind of cat and mouse can be done and fortunately the script is written well enough that hey they managed to still pull it off and be kind of fun and clever by the end of it as i say the direction's worth nothing um kevin pollock's good and in it um, and Selma Blair's fun. You know, it's a lot of fun, though, if you think of this as the low-budget sequel to Hellboy, since Selma Blair's character in that franchise is hiding from her own dangerous powers. And essentially, what's to say this isn't the same character? Aside from, you know, reality. But it is distributed by Universal Pictures, same people who did Golden Army, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. So... I don't think it's that far of a stretch. Superman. There would be that second wave of trying to do pulp characters in the 90s mm. after Batman hit it big. Right. Which obviously, yeah. again, means Tim Burton never read comic books. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in, in that pulp run, you, you know, like the shit that was when we had the adaptations of the shadow and the phantom and yeah. so forth. And they were still running into uh, failures to properly adapt the material for modern mores. But well, you, you did have Russell, ever, Mul- but... I'm just saying with the shadow, you did have Russell Mulcahy, Mulcahy as the director. So that's not a good start. <laughs> but, um, 
Yeah, you know, Buckford Bonsai is not the most progressive movie by modern standards, but well, it's, I mean, aside from <laughs> not as bad as it could have been in trying to make pulp work for the eighties. Well, I'm just saying this is definitely not the worst by any stretch. I mean, though the worst bit is the fact that you have again Buckaroo Bonsai being a Caucasian um, who's supposed to be of a Japanese father. Again, I've already defended that. You can send me a check later, Cameron Crow. So, because, yeah, I mean, I really, I mean, I love the race element that we have. You know, essentially, the black people are the good guys. And, you know, we should have embraced that damn near 30 years ago now. Then, But, um, gosh, it's one of those movies, like, this is definitely a movie where it's like, yeah, kind of wish Fox News were around just to screw with them. <laughs> uh, but I do love the cheap effects right now when they're uh, talking to. Uh, I don't want to uh, mistake the title of the um, the lead uh, black electroid, mm-hmm. uh, John. Oh shoot! Come on, I know they had her name pretty high, uh, John Emdel. Right. <laughs> so, if anything, this movie might be offensive to Jamaicans, but I haven't looked at all the IMDb's. <laughs> but I love the cheap effects on these vision, these uh, goggles, which basically look like yeah. bubble wrap. Mm-hmm. Now, bubble wrap was still relatively new in the eight. 80- well, <laughs> bubble wrap was introduced a lot sooner, later than people might think. It was introduced in the mid seventies. Yes, and no, I knew it wasn't a sixties product, but well, well, one thing with uh, bubble wrap was that it was used uh, in creating one of the aliens in one of the early Tom Baker Doctor Who serials. And it looked a bit creepier back then than it would once it became more commonplace. Well, yes, granted, I'm just saying, like, well, that seems... They spray-painted it to make an alien larva, basically. Right. I'm just like, well, that seems even expensive for Doctor Who. All things considered. Uh, Just going back to a robot chicken when the uh, nerd gets on the TARDIS... (laughs) Oh, no, these are civilization. Oh, yeah, really. What did that cost you? A penny? I'm sorry, a hay penny? <laughs> what did that cost you, sir? Oh, a hay penny? <laughs> There's also a lot of jokes about Snoopy's house being bigger on the inside as well. Yeah, that that's a running gag that goes back roughly at the same time as Doctor Who came along, but Schultz couldn't have known about it. <laughs> yeah just uh still kind of peripheral it's like um does helen ellen like i can't really think of an ellen barkin character who wasn't exceptionally neurotic in a sense i'm not familiar enough with her work yes have an opinion on the matter right i'm just saying she's definitely a little out there in mad dog time (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
One thing about uh, Buckaroo Bonsai was that it was getting greenlit was basically because the success of Star Wars and Indiana Jones suggested that something that you might be able to turn into a series might be worth greenlighting. Oh, yeah. I mean, ha- Drew McQueenie ha- talked about this and in the 80s all over uh, bonus episode. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that makes 80s sci-fi so interesting, especially early on in the decade, is that people did seem willing to kind of try any concept or put any spin on the material they could think of. For, mm. So they could see if they could cash in on how popular sci-fi Star Wars was. Uh, well, at least Hollywood wasn't dependent on that as it is now. No, it wasn't. There was definitely a... It's clear not everybody was quite sure where to start. I think that's partially because there had been so many direct Star Wars knockoffs at the end of the 70s, especially from foreign productions like Message from Space or Star Crash, that just doing a straight Star Wars ripoff wouldn't do. Right. I mean, I mean, Disney doing something like the Black Hole isn't even quite like a Star Wars knockoff. Sure, it's got a cute robot, but well, as Jessica Ritchie, a my cute ro- friend, put it put it best. It's basically Kids Bop two thousand one by the end of that movie. No, that's a fair statement. But I'm saying a cute robot. Are we talking just Bob, or are we talking Victor? Like. Like, but um, that's the closest thing it had to Star Wars was two cute robots. Thank you. Right. But the bigger studios were trying to think outside the box because uh, because between Star Wars and the uh, the other big sci fi fantasy things that broke at the end of the 70s, like Close Encounters, the third kind, which is a. Uh, different kind of space adventure yeah or the dungeons dragons taking off you had a lot of interest weird ideas being floated around the major studios kind of a well well what can we take just one element of star wars and build a movie around it which is said to be how uh universal pictures greenlit heartbeats there, apparently, um, the story goes there was a survey said the thing people like best about Star Wars was it had cute robots so the thinking is well we make why not make the whole movie about the cute robot characters well, where, where will that take you should have waited till the animated series failed <laughs> so, or uh, as I look up at, at my Ewok cell <laughs> uh you know, Dungeons and Dragons is really popular. So, well, what's what what can we do with the medieval fantasy where we could work in a lot of character types? Yeah, the fun thing though is you still had the adult theme stuff because um uh, recently the Windy City double feature uh show did um a biweekly podcast um did a triple feature Mm -hmm. of. Um, time bandits time walker and um sword and the sorcerer uh albert peon yeah albert peon's breakthrough yes which i was reading i have this wonderful book of uh, old sci-fi and fantasy newspaper ads from the 80s and 90s called ad astra and 
it mentions that Sword and the Sorcerer actually did better at the box office than some of the big studio fantasy releases that year. Mm. It, it was probably Pin's biggest success as a filmmaker, financially speaking. Oh, yeah. And no, set up I, the whole it, rest of his career. It, I love it came my... out in the spring, and it like it did more business than Tron did. Yeah. Oh, I I love me some of uh, Albert Pion just for about just just for the hell of it type stuff and in uh i like no i i think cyborg is underappreciated <laughs> i definitely should have made the canon draft on screen drafts if not cyborg blood sport obviously but can't do canon without a van dam van dam bronson and norris you're, that's Michael Dudikoff eraser and erasure, and you know it. Hey, I just did. I just watched um, Cyber Jack and talked about it on the last episode of podcast. So, okay, I didn't know. <laughs> oh, who's not subscribed and following the feed? Rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast apps. Five star reviews, preferably. Talk as honestly as you'd like about the f- podcast and your reviews. I just want those stars. So. No, uh, Michael Dudikoff, if you want to talk about him, he is an actor. He didn't know anything about martial arts until Cannon said he's uh-huh. the American ninja. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, Cyberjack, though, was a lot of fun because, like, Brian James was, like, the predecessor to Tom Hardy. Because Tom Hardy never uses the same voice, tries to make every performance very different. <laughs> And um, yeah, Brian James always seemed to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, if it wasn't for his over-the-top limey character in Cat, uh, Tango and Cash, he'd probably have no screen time in that movie. <laughs> I just recently watched the cinema snob talk about Tango and Cash. Uh-huh. Yeah, so. Uh, now, I did find this, like, going through the IMDb. I did not realize that uh, President Whit- Whitrock <laughs> at least I'm looking at the IMDb, it was played by the guy best known as the bald Nazi in uh, Raiders. Uh, Ronald well, it's Lacey. Like a colorful cast going down. I mean, the assistant, uh, Yakov, well, that's an early role for the comic Yakov Smirnov, the yes. Russian comic who was oh, yeah. the distinct 80s phenomena. <laughs> Oh yeah, no, it's it's definitely an '80s phenomenon because if you're not a comedy fan, not many people will know it. Like, because I have a uh, at my job, we have one of our uh, delivery drivers is Russian. <laughs> yeah, you hear some of his stories, and then I look at my assistant manager, who's probably got a decade on me. It's like in Soviet Russia, <laughs> so. But, you know, going back to Bonsai, basically, at this point in the 80s, everybody's trying to reverse engineer Star Wars in a way. Well, not everybody. There are filmmakers who are trying to reverse engineer Star Wars by taking what worked in that film and trying to plug it into different, plug it into a different script. Or you have people who are just taking elements of what worked and trying to 
spin something new out of that. Oh which yeah, is where a lot of the best ideas happen. Oh no, it's it, you're take Star Wars and then try just changing the environment entirely. I mean, Sword and Sandal basically got a lot of inspiration from Star Wars. Um, well, I'd yeah, the, the and, hero's journey archetype, right? That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, that was one reason Sword and Sandal got a boost in popularity. Was you could tell you're basically telling the same kind of story on Star Wars, but you don't have to go to many as, as many expensive locations to do it. I mean, budget was always an issue with is always an issue with knockoff cinema, but if you can find a low cost equivalent, then you know that that's half your job done. Well, and you could even bring it back to, um, say, uh, Full Moon Pictures, uh, which is, um, shoot, I know his name. I can't come it off at the top of my head. Charles Band. Yeah, Charles Band. A lot of the stuff he does, like, he's more concerned with buying a property just so he can shoot movies in it. Yeah. Yeah, so. You know, well, it's like, or like, what Roger Corman did with Bale Beyond the Stars was he he, do, he does this pretty very enjoyable Star Wars knockoff. Mm. And they spend a little extra money on doing de- some decent model work and stuff. And then they recycle that model footage and, footage and the James Horner music into a ton of other productions afterward. Galaxy of Terror, The Forbidden World. Yeah, uh, for, yeah, Forbidden World, Galaxy of Terror, Space Raiders, they're all built to different different extents around reusing a lot of the model shots. And the uh, Battle Beyond the Stars score popped up in a bunch of other New World movies. Mm-hmm. It, it's very recognizable after a while. <laughs> so, I don't know, I was thinking just because you have the Electoids, uh, you know, and uh, aliens described as humans. I mean, that was a big boom around that time, too, I think, with the aliens, you know, the alien features. Basically, you're always looking for a new cane. Uh, you know, rest in peace, Ian Holm. <laughs> well, well, yeah, the what what TV tropes calls human aliens. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, again, that that helps on your budget if you don't have to do tons of alien makeup all the time. Oh, the one thing you do notice in Buck Rubansai was they they the budget for the makeup was relatively limited, which is why the red electroid masks, most of them aren't exactly expressive. No, no. I'm just now getting to where they're taking the uh, gasp to mm-hmm. and Jeff Goldblum again. I mean. Okay, so this movie is basically a must-see for any Jeff Goldblum fan. Yeah, it is kind of one of the key early roles. Yeah. And there, there, there's kind of a direct connection between this and one of the other uh, foundational Goldblum movies is that uh, W.D. Richter, the director, had yeah. previously written The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, th- this, is, this is directed by that movie's writer. Oh right. Uh Richter had an interesting uh career around this time. He also scripted the nineteen seventy-nine Dracula. He was kind of a yeah, the script a, script wasn't the problem with that movie, big, I will say that. <laughs> a big yeah, a big figure. 
fairly uh, popular figure in genre screenwriting at the time. Uh, incidentally, the director of Invasion of the Body Snatchers 78, Philip Kaufman, had just directed Goldblum in the Right Stuff before this movie. All right, yeah. And Invasion of the Body Snatchers is uh, one of the bedrock Goldblum movies because that's the movie where he found his cadence. Hmm. He said this more, Goldblum has said this more than once, and it is obvious when you look at the really early stuff and what came after Invasion, is that this is where he really found his distinctive fumfering affectation. Okay. For those who don't know what fumfering is, it's what sounds like a stutter. Goldman yeah. talks about this in uh, the vi- one of the, um, I think, Wired, a video he did for Wired's YouTube channel, where he explains the, the way he speaks is not a stutter, it is an affectation he, he affects. Uh, fumfering is, it's a Yiddish term, yeah. and it, you know, it's repeating words and stammering and tripping over it, which... All of us do to some extent naturally, but actors usually work to eliminate this when they're performing. I, I.e. the, dare I get political, the famous, uh, you know, oh, Joe Biden inspired me to get over my stutter type stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so I was just going through uh, Goldblum's filmography because I have a question, um, but I didn't know he was on Crank Yankers. Yes, he did. Uh, he did three appearances. Wow. Okay. Um, two of them are as a dirty old man college professor. I think I, you think saw I one am of those. familiar with that. Yeah, you one. saw one of those, <laughs> and that that definitely is kind of dated now. Well, no, I mean, uh, gosh, I don't want to think about my buddy Raul had uh, the uh, "You got mail, I got, I have, I got mail" guy tattooed mm-hmm. on his inner arm. Yeah. Um, and the other appearance he did is, is the other appearance Goldblum did was as a suburban dad who calls a place to arrange for a surprise party. I think it's like at a Chuck E. Cheese place. Mm. But then he calls back to say somebody spoiled the par- the surprise for his kid. And now everything's falling apart at home. <laughs> so I just um, recently saw on uh, Amazon Prime, they have this uh, movie that Goldblum was in with uh, Cindy Lauper, I believe. Vibes. Yeah. You don't know about Vibes? How can you say you know your 80s movies if you don't know about Vibes? I think we brought up Vibes in the original Jurassic Jeff Jezebel owes me me $7.99 episode, uh, which I still got to try recovering since... uh, Podbean only lets me get a hundred episodes, at least with the level I am paying right now. I don't want to pay three times that much. Um, okay, but you are asking about vibes. Nineteen eighty-eight. Uh, it wasn't available back when uh, we did the Goldblum pod, I think, or right. I was still following the one thirty-seven limit. It's possible. Yeah, but uh, it is on Blu-ray now. Oh, okay. Actually, TCM Underground featured it a few times. Mm-hmm. But it was one of, but yes, uh, Vibes was one of Goldblum's first roles after the fly, right. the fly. And when they were kind of experimenting with him as a leading man. Yeah, which led to kind of that, what they, we came to call the Euro Goldblum period over on the Complete Works podcast. No, we, we brought that up with uh, Shooting Elizabeth, correct? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we talked about that too. 
Uh, but vibes. That's was... the seven ninety nine. If you're wondering what that title was about. Yeah. But uh, it, vibes was another mix. Oh, of no, no, now that I'm seeing the trailer play on my IMD peripheral. Yeah, that you, you got uh, freaking. Dang it! I'm sorry. Uh, Columbo in there? Am I right? Yeah, Peter Falk. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the movie is about a pair of psychics. Right. Uh, I... uh, Goldblum has the ability to know the history of an object he touches if he focuses. Yes, on it. I did see that piece in the trailer. Like this knife was used yeah. in a murder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and Lopper has a a has can communicate with a spirit and has the power to astrally project herself among other things oh okay uh, they get thrown together um but when peter Falk's character approaches them ostensibly to track down a lost son in ecuador but it's really to search out an ancient treasure in lost city okay so, so i think we are um the easy way to describe it, and I know others have, is that it's romancing the stone, but with Ghostbusters elements. Yes, yeah, I think down I'm... to the finale. Um, it's pretty lightly enjoyable. Some people are really fond of it. All right, uh, so the, the district Columbia kind of just threw it away at the time. They were going through a lot of financial issues by 1988, so they didn't really give this a push, and it kind of had a rough production. Makes you wonder how they got a Lopper so. and Goldblum didn't really get along, and Goldblum was only cast after Dan Aykroyd dropped out. So there's uh, already you're talking about people who can't do leading roles. <laughs> Look, the Blues Brothers a gimmick. I hate to say that. Ghostbusters wouldn't have worked without Bill Murray, and I think Aykroyd but... was smart enough about that one. Uh, but yeah, vibes is another mi- mixing and match thing. Yeah, no, it's it definitely... speaks to that that kind of because we talked about how 1984 is a lot of the comedy sci-fi hybrid movies, but Ghostbusters was the one that took off. So for the rest of the decade, you see a bunch of variations on that. Yeah. So and um, yeah, I was just looking at Ken Quapis is the director Ken and Quapis. Um, so... Big Bootay. Big Bootay. Well, I think that's pronunciation. I'm just, no, I'm just. But uh, yeah, this was one of the scripts by uh, Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, who had had a big hit with Splash and okay. yeah. a few other genre screenplays in the same vein after. Right. Yeah, it just doesn't seem like, I don't know where you thought Cindy Lauper could lead a movie. Ugh. Well, she's actually quite charming. It's a shame that it kind of turned her off from acting well that 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 is sad but i'm just saying it's actually kind of like... i mean this is the she's really doing the kind of thing that madonna was trying to do for the first few years of her career as an actress yeah but madonna still had desperately desperately seeking yeah but uh, I mean... no you could no longer's really likable in the movie and you wouldn't know that it was a difficult production because they she and goldblum do have a nice chemistry going by the end oh it helps that, that this is the kind of story where the characters start out as antagonistic. But. Okay, yeah. No, don't no, say, no matter how rough a relationship you have, dare I go back to Deborah Winger and Richard Gere. Yeah. Uh, if you're if you're going to be professional about it, you can definitely mm-hmm. develop a chemistry. Right. So. 
again, wrestling knowledge too. Like we we like to say, uh, uh, better friends, stiffer enemies. <laughs> so, right. Actually, so, vibes does remind me though that um, it's really movies like Ghostbusters that started the dreaded cliche of the modern superhero movie in particular. Though it pops up in other genre movies too, the ending where you have to close a portal. Yeah, because um, uh, you get this. In ha- the, the ending of Howard the Duck hinges on this. The ending of Vibes basically hinges on this. Okay. You must stop. You must stop some something uh, evil from, from coming through. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's weird that that basically starts in a bunch of comedy movies, but well, now we play it totally straight. Uh, yeah. No, that is that is strange. Um, but since uh. Yeah, when did we start teaching Jeff Goldblum how to handle a gun? Because we're we're at the we're at the assault on a Yo Yo Dine in the yeah. movie. It's like, ha! I mean, they even joke about. I mean, I know the character is not supposed to know, and the the uh, character's you know kind of dim. He's just happy to be there in a lot of states. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking of other movies where you have to close the portal at the end. I think that's the ending of my science project is you have to close the portal. <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm trying to think. Uh, that's the one with Dennis Hopper. Oh. <laughs> From 85. Okay. Well, I, I look, you I, have I to didn't close the portal. There's a, there's a thing about Dennis Hopper is like, I don't really know anything myself between, um, Apocalypse Now and Blue Velvet. It's all kind of a blank space for me. Well, but between those, he wasn't doing a ton of work. Then. Yeah, true. I do know that much, but yeah. And I said, I mean, 86 was really. Yeah. Um, was it 86? Um, where uh, Dennis Hopper was really becoming Dennis Hopper to the modern yeah audience. that's the year he did both blue velvet and hoosiers and uh where was texas chainsaw was that 88 no that was 86 texas yeah chainsaw. So masco too yeah yeah <laughs> which is really like oh gosh i don't even want to sorry i watch a lot of what culture videos <laughs> um and yeah you get to see all the i know way too much about texas chainsaw without actually seeing the original movie <laughs> And I'm not, you know, it's like, what were you guys thinking? Like, I think Toby Hooper even had a good clue on what he was thinking with Texas Chainsaw 2. Yeah. Um, and at least uh, Texas Chainsaw 3 has an awesome trailer with uh, the Lady of the Lake can't fl- throwing the chainsaw to Leatherface. So. Um. I do love like they they really go full fascist on the red electroids. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess I guess I should say red is obviously this is a communist joke. Yeah, it probably is. You couldn't really not bring that up in the mid eighties. No. That was all kind of a late period Cold War thing. Yeah, you couldn't do it in the mid-80s. Like, 
I'll say best Cold War movie afterwards. I mean, okay, I will say Bridges Spies, but what do you expect when you combine Cohen's Hanks and <laughs> Spielberg? But uh, from a fun movie standpoint, <laughs> would be uh, Atomic Blonde with, but um, which is more about the Germans, the East Germans resisting the idea of yeah, it's all ending. Good soundtrack. Naked Charlize Theron. I can tell you my part, like, judging that I'm relying a lot on Andrew T to carry the podcast now. It's like, yeah, we're going for stoner dudes. <laughs> and now, I just, uh, as we're going through the finale, uh, we're building towards the climax, I should say. Um, I can't help but appreciate our Secretary of Defense. I can't recall the actor's name uh matt clark it's definitely got that uh vibe of your um your kind of your uh f troop i mean he's eventually negotiate trying to negotiate getting the um the portal jumping stuff from the little black kid mm-hmm so, I don't know. And watching this, it's kind of like, man, we really need more love for Vincent Schiavelli. I would agree. I think Lucky Charm and Milos Forman's films. Yes. Oh. It's all the way through. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which release? That this. Like the last thing I saw in was Death to Smoochie. Yeah, that was one of his last films. Yeah, it was just uh Oh, that was Danny DeVito. So kind yeah, of they, they work together a lot. Right. I was gonna say kind of Milo short foreman in a sense. <laughs> yeah. Cause um you can definitely tell there's definitely an influence of that on Death to Smoochie really a movie that I think was under like just maybe was ahead of its time I don't know I really don't know yeah I saw it at, I saw it at Westlake so it's, it was either too late or too early that's for sure right yeah or maybe just something we didn't want to acknowledge <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like, especially when you have the entire um, smoochy blackmail bit. Yeah. I don't hate anyone. You don't hate Nazis? <laughs> um, so. But, um, yeah, I mean, this, if it wasn't Buckaroo Bonza, I don't know if Christopher Lloyd was going to be a believable villain. I mean, maybe in a comic sense. I mean, obviously his... His first villain role. In fact, he played a straightforward villain in another of the many attempts to do Pulp Fiction in the 80s, which was 1981's Legend of the Lone Ranger. Oh. Plays the the key antagonist of the Lone Ranger's backstory, one Butch Cavendish. Oh, okay. And that plays things totally straight. Huh. 
some roles earlier than that. I I just need need a creepy grin or a monkey boy joke <laughs> to feel comfortable. I mean, Star Trek Three is an all right movie, but it's definitely not. It's not a. It's definitely not an even number Star Trek movie. Despite uh, all the love that uh, Trey and Matt give it. Mm-hmm. I have had enough of you. But, I mean, you can you can complain about, you know, budget restraints, but it's kind of like, in the 80s, you have these bits where, like, oh, what's our climax going to be? <laughs> I can't really say this, the... Uh, the jet battle or the spaceship battle was overly uh and and I say that again just watching the lost boys and how it's like oh and the villain falls for that (laughs) (laughs) so but um let me see where are we at okay So, I don't know. As we talk about Jeff Goldblum being beloved, it's now. I mean, I think Jeff Goldblum is interesting in the sense that I can't think of a direct-to-video thing he's ever done. Jeff Goldblum? Yeah. I'm not sure anything he ever did absolutely went direct-to-video. Well, there was some. He did do some direct-to-cable work at the turn of the 90s. Well, yes, but I mean, HBO was gold at that time. No, HBO didn't have that big reputation for original productions back then. They were doing them, but most Mm. of them, we know, were kind of low-rend. I mean, Framed is an amusing movie, but... Mm. But um, I say that because, uh, you know, Peter Weller, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. I mean... For me, Peter Weller, direct a video, I'm there. <laughs> Which is kind of like, I don't know, what was he lacking? If he's lacking anything. Because I've, I've seen some, you know, like, I've seen some bad movies with Peter Weller, but they're all, I mean, he is always excellent. I would even say uh, recently did uh, Top of the World. Where it's basically um, Die Hard at New York, New York. <laughs> um, like, which is which is also like it, it's a fun movie to watch just for the character interactions you get. Like, where else are you going to get Dennis Hopper versus Peter Peter Coyote or Joey Pants versus Dennis Hopper? And. Uh, there's not enough great Martin Cove performances out there. So, I don't know. I'm just like... And then another movie I've seen with Peter Weller, part of the Alex Accessory Shop on Etsy's Trash Feature Reviews, was uh, Shadow Hours, where he he does a pretty good job at being a Faustian slash uh, hybrid with, say, um, Tyler Durden, the uh, imaginary friend. So, I don't know. Like, I'd probably have to pull up his IMDb. Like, 
I'm just saying, you know, you you brought up that, oh yeah, well he had Leviathan and carried that, and then it's like, well, I'm thinking it was just not a warm and cuddly screen presence that people seem to tend to prefer for their A-listers mm. most of the time. He's, You're saying he, he wasn't, wasn't cute it. and lovely and lo- lovable and uh, naked lunch. <laughs> See, you're going right into that. I don't know. Again, I did a lot of crazy people. I think you might call it a bit of distance to him. Hmm. It's very effective in those kind of settings, but um, you know, it's not that he didn't have the traditional action star build of this period. That oh no, no, he was ahead of the time. If anything, yeah. If anything, it was I've been a bit ahead of the curve. Right, no, he's no, it's not until Die Hard do we have uh, some regular looking guy. Um, I will say though, he was an excellent um Batman in the uh Dark Knight Returns adaptations, right? But yeah, Oh, and there's another tryhard I have to see. He did a lot of tryhards too, actually. Now that after watching the uh, Bad Movie Bible YouTube channel, like, uh, oh yeah, Diplomatic Siege. Yeah, that's one I've been meaning to watch. Like him and Eric Roberts. It's almost, I guess. Uh, I guess the big question is, can you see a Jeff Goldblum as a um, hero? I mean, as a lead hero in any of these kind of, not just pulpy, but, you know, cult-like action movies. I don't think he was really an action star. Well, not action, but, I mean, Bill Murray is not an action star. (laughs) That's what I'm I guess when I say pulp and stuff. But no, um, in a light comedy context, he he works just fine. Okay, you see, times then work or light caper farce, which is what Framed was. Right. No, they just have to work relatively light. And again, it wasn't really the style of the time. So, you know, you kind of, sometimes you only have a window of so long when you can really be more than a character actor. Okay, that's true. It's 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 just like nobody respects the um character actors, I guess, unless you're you know, a pretty looking character like everybody's just basically saying the Best thing about Brad Pitt is he's actually a character actor. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and he, like, he's not a great lead, <laughs> I would say. I mean, Edward Norton is the lead in Fight Club. Um, I mean, you have ultimate ensemble, ensembles when he works with Tarantino. So... I guess that's the real trick is trying to get one of these um, non-film school savants behind you, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, in 
everybody talks about what the 10th uh, Quentin Tarantino movie will be. And it's like, I don't care what it is as long as we can get Jeff Goldblum in it. <laughs> so, but yeah, now we're to the anticlimactic ending where eh, one shot and the bad guys are dead. So I do is one of the funnier aspects of the story is that the red lactroids are actually pretty pathetic. Oh yeah. Uh, it's just just they, really confused oh, me. How did they rule the threat to, <laughs> enough of a threat that the plot has some stakes, but not enough that the heroes can't steamroll them. <laughs> right. But um, of course you got one of the greatest lines after uh, Bakaru uh, gets back to Earth from his parachuting. Uh, so the president wants to know Uh, are we are the are we fine uh, are we going to are we going to war or and are we supposed to nuke Russia uh, no on the first oh, no sorry something are we is everything fine and are we going to nuke Russia yes on the first no on the second which one was which I mean, the subtle humor is another charming thing about this movie. I mean, that's one problem with a lot. You compare it to something like the Ice Pirates, which is a lot broader in that. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, plenty of of eunuch jokes. (laughs) Originally written as a comedy, and it only became one in the late development. So, and you can kind of tell. Yes, you can. So. But let's see. So, no, uh, we just have to bring Ellen Barkin back from the dead, and I'd say that's a movie. <laughs> so, otherwise, uh, uh, Ben, any movie recommendations right now, be it uh, new or old? I can't think of any offhand. Although, I'm thinking if you want then maybe if you'd like some ideas for another episode down the line Mm -hmm. uh, we did the episode once early on about 80s animated features Mm -hmm. we could do a follow-up about uh very early 90s animation yeah i would say you'd have to narrow it down because that by that point uh the 90s was again well now you know like let's well, let's do 1990 to 93, maybe. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, before the world blows up with The Lion King, of course. Um, well, not just that it blows up with The Lion King, but 1990-93, I find fascinating because it's basically the uh, cleaning off the shelves. Yes, no, there's definitely that vibe. It, it's not 1994 is the point when you when everybody's starting to obviously imitate the disney comeback 1993 is what everybody was just kind of doing beforehand mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which i think is more interesting yes no i could i could agree with that so 
Uh, otherwise, you can keep track of the Poetic Critic on her letterbox. That's the Poetic Critic, and um, and otherwise, you of course rate and subscribe to this podcast. Five star reviews, preferably. Talk as much crap as you want in the the uh, review box. Uh, I but keep in mind, I'll reciprocate five star reviews. Uh, otherwise, talk trash about the podcast at Cat Bus Russ, and I guess you know it's kind of awkward this week. Thank you very much for the sympathy card again for Little Scamble. No problem. Like, um, I mean, he's totally screwed up Ava. So Ava's a kind and loving kitty who will kill anything that annoys her, but. Uh, she's never, she has not left my side since Gimbal's gone. So I think she just feels like she's got to fill in his role as being the cute little pup, little, little pet. But, uh, with that said, I hope Stacia Harden is smothering the crap out of that little bugger. I, they are great influences on my life and I hope they are keeping an eye on everybody's whose life they touch. And now I just really caught on to the fact that Peter Weller, like, did we really need to rappel down a 45 degree angle? And I don't know. Why is perfect? To, I mean, okay, he's perfect. I was about to say, why is he got his shirt open? And yeah, I, I will say um, the Jewish cowboy experience. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just had Rick Moranis moments because he, I think he may have won a Grammy for a Jewish country album. So, all right. So, yep. And just imagine the cast walking off as we sign off. Thanks again, the poetic critic. If you want to be on the podcast, send us, uh, send an email to rustthebus07 at gmail.com. That's R U S S T H E B U S 07 at gmail.com. Offer me a movie, a theme, a director, an actor, as long as we focus on sub 100 minute material, or you have a clever way of getting us to talk about longer movies, let me know. So thanks again, uh, The Poetic Critic, and, you know, look forward to bad mouthing some cartoons. All <laughs> or right. Pra- um, or phrasing. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. I will say that the uh, Spielberg draft did not give enough Fievel love out there. We going west. <laughs> All right. Talk to you later. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. Can I hear a wahoo?